This program is brought to you by the Patient Empowerment Network. It is made possible through support from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Foundation Medicine, Takeda Oncology, and generous donations from people like you. Thank you for joining Empowered, a podcast brought to you by the Patient Empowerment Network, also known as PEN. This program is meant to guide you in your healthcare journey, giving you the knowledge and confidence to make informed decisions about your care. For more resources and to learn more about Penn, visit PowerfulPatients.org. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Empowered, a podcast by the Patient Empowerment at Work. Today we meet Jack Aiello. Jack is a myeloma survivor and serves on the board of the Patient Empowerment Network, also known as Penn. He joins us today from San Jose, California. Jack, welcome to Empowered. Thank you, Jamie. Let's get started. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Well, I, I live in San Jose, which is part of the Bay Area in California, Northern California. And up until I had to retire, I always worked within the high-tech arena. I initially started with uh, Intel Corporation in the mid-70s, moved to a laptop company that used Intel products in the early 80s, and then was VP of Marketing for a video editing company in the 90s. And uh, so I've enjoyed being part of the high-tech area. I've certainly seen the Bay Area change from, we used to have a lot of fruit and other orchards around, and now we have a lot of high-tech semiconductor companies and and such, but uh, I've enjoyed the Bay Area and have lived here really all my life except for the mid-70s in the Boston area. And what about your family? Are you married? Do you have children or grandchildren? I am married. I've been married 47 years to my college sweetheart. Um, we have three kids and four grandkids. None of them live nearby. Um, so we often travel to Seattle or to Virginia or to LA, which is where we find all the kids and grandkids. Outside of your advocacy work and visiting your uh, family traveling, um, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? So I love sports. Um, and uh, although I'm not able to do them much anymore, I'm able to certainly watch them and I cheer lots. I'm a homer uh, from long ago, rooting for the Giants and Niners and, and Warriors and, uh, and such. I enjoy wine tasting trips. Uh, and we have many of them throughout California, really. And I do lots of travel. Uh, I do a lot of travel for advocacy work, but I, as I mentioned, I have lots of pleasure trips as well, uh, visiting the family. Tell us about your, tell us your myeloma story. When were you diagnosed and what was your treatment like? So I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in early 1995. And the initial treatment back then was something called VAD, then Christine Adriamycin and dexamethasone and you got it for 96 hours in the hospital. And that was the induction therapy. It was done for a few cycles. Following that, I had a tandem autologous transplant. So that meant I had two transplants right in a row. That only gave me about a year and a half remission. And so late 97, early 98, I was in the original thalidomide trial. And while it didn't work for me, it made a big difference in terms of the future for myeloma patients because thalidomide actually did show efficacy 
for about a third of the patients that uh, were in that trial. And thalidomide led to Revlimid and led to Pomalist and uh, other drugs. But since it didn't work for me, and in 98, no other chemo worked for me, uh, the only option left was a third transplant, this one called an allogeneic transplant, where I was given stem cells from a donor, the donor in this case being my sister. And while that caused two or three years of graft-versus-host disease, and what are called some plasma cytomas that had to be radiated during those two or three years. By 2001, um, I was actually in a complete remission and haven't been on any treatment since then. That's very impressive. So obviously you've been a survivor for quite some time now. What inspired you to get involved in your advocacy work? In 2001, when I was finally in this good remission, I did have some significant side effects. I had bad neuropathy from most likely the high dose of thalidomide I was on, and I had something called fibrosis from the radiation treatments, which causes kind of thickening of skin. So it prevents, both those have result result in nerve damage and muscle atrophy. So as a result, I don't walk well, and that's progressively getting worse. In 2001, when those side effects started getting worse, I had to go on medical disability and uh, because I wasn't able to continue the work that I enjoyed doing so much. But I still had a head on my shoulders. I still feel okay, and I'm still pretty solid from the neck up. So I uh, contacted organizations that I had gotten to know during my first six or seven years of treatment the International Myeloma Foundation, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I contacted them and said, I can help volunteer. And anything you want to do, I'm, I'm available. And all of them got back to me, and I've gotten involved with all those organizations. I go into a Leukemia and Lymphoma Society office every day where I have my own desk and computer and do work for them. And I'm very much involved with uh, IMF programs and to a lesser extent, MMRF programs. So that's really how I got into the area of advocacy. It has expanded to where I have been involved more now with the research advocacy side of things. How do clinical trials get developed and, and what makes them good trials for patients? There are organizations, the National Cancer Institute, there are groups like SWOG, it's not important what the initials mean, SWOG or Alliance that comprise of several hundred institutions. When you're doing a phase two or phase three trial, you need lots of patients on there. And how do you get all those patients? Well, you get institutions together to run a trial. But I get involved at the early stage of developing a trial. I'll give feedback from a patient's perspective on the concept, um, as well as the eligibility criteria, what the protocol of a trial looks like as it works its way through first one of those initial organizations I mentioned, and then the NCI, and and then out to the institutions once the trial has been approved. And uh, so I keep pretty busy these days as it relates to myeloma. That's important work, and I feel like you obviously stay very busy. So Jack, in your opinion, where's the current gap in patient care? And how do you think these gaps can be addressed or resolved? So I think there are two big gaps in patient care. One has to do with the availability of treatments to 
specifically underserved populations. By underserved, I mean it could have to do with race, ethnicity, but it may have to do with geography. I live in the Bay Area where we have great medical institutions available to us, but that's not true if you're in the middle of the U.S. It's not quite as prevalent there, and uh, so it could be more difficult to find both a myeloma expert. It could be more difficult to become part of a clinical trial um, just because you're not near those. And I think the other gap, which really affects all cancer treatments, all cancer patients, is the potential financial toxicity in the U.S. We have a situation where drugs can cost an awful lot of money. I know patients who have had to make decisions between do they get the recommended treatment? Do they get a treatment maybe that doesn't cost as much but may not be as effective? Do they get lower dosages to be able to stretch treatments out? Or do they just, do they just not get the treatment? And that's a sad state of affairs and shouldn't happen. Myeloma, though, is a, a global disease. So in different countries, there are different gaps. In some countries, they may not have uh, access to drugs like we at least have here, even if they may cost a lot of money. In some countries, they may not have access to myeloma experts. So I'm lucky in that one of the things I do is also work with advocates like myself, but from other countries. And we meet annually or sometimes twice a year to kind of share best practices with each other so that countries can learn from other countries in terms of what has worked to be able to increase and diminish or reduce the size of the various gaps that those countries face. Very interesting and also very true. What advantage does an educated patient have when diagnosed with myeloma, for instance, or any disease for that matter? The educated patient, the biggest advantage they have is they have a good understanding of what questions they should be asking their doctor. Myeloma is not a cut and dry one treatment takes care of all patients. There are many options out there. And it's very fair for patients to ask doctors, why is a particular treatment being recommended for them? It's also very fair for a patient to say, well, because I'm working full time, I'd rather have an oral treatment than a treatment that requires me to go to an infusion clinic. But if you're not educated, you may not even know those various options exist. I think also that I think that educated patient, I, I think doctors appreciate the educated patient. I know when I was initially diagnosed and I began learning more and more, I had great discussions with my initial oncologist. And he was the one that often would refer me to a myeloma expert, uh, be it in, at Stanford in this case, or Little Rock, Arkansas, where I ended up getting some of my treatment. Um, but I think because of my education, he felt I could handle that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's a win-win, I believe. Related to that, how can patients really get involved and make an impact? And, and can one patient make a difference? So I think patients can do what I've done. I mean, I've attended a support group for many years, and now I facilitate a support group. And, pay, and groups like that, advocacy organizations, are always looking for volunteers uh, to help out. There's a lot of work to be done. It may be just handing out leaflets to clinics and institutions to let other patients know that various resources exist and here's how to get those resources. 
or maybe getting much more involved, like I've gotten involved in the research advocacy world. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Nobody likes fundraising, for example, but there's nothing that stops you from uh, doing a fundraiser where you can work with any of these advocacy organizations and decide you'd like to fundraise for research or you'd like to fundraise for myeloma education or you want to fundraise on someone's behalf. So there are a number of ways to really get involved and have an impact on uh, myeloma, uh, both yourself as a patient and future patients. That's great advice. Jack, you're obviously very involved in the myeloma community and making a difference, and that's got to be very rewarding for you. What gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> so, I, you know, I get out of bed. I'm, first of all, I'm a light sleeper, so it's pretty easy for me to get out of bed. But when I was diagnosed 24 years ago, I was told I had two to three years to live. So now it's 24 years later, and it's all upside for me. I've gotten to uh, walk my daughters down the aisle, and I've gotten to bounce grandkids on my lap, and I want to be able to do more of that as often as possible. So it's real easy for me to get up in the morning as it relates to my family, and I think I've also made a difference in the myeloma world. I talk every day with uh, newly diagnosed patients and try to help them and guide them in ways that will benefit them to uh, have as good a life and as good a quality of life as possible. Well, I think that's obvious too. I've known you for a long time and um, every time I talk to you, I feel like I, well, every time I know I learn something new and I'm <laughs> always so impressed with the way you carry yourself. So what's the best advice you've ever received? So I think in life, uh, you know, there's always that golden rule and you can phrase it however you want, but it's basically treat others as you want to be treated. And I watched my dad live that life to its fullest. And, and that has stuck with me. In myeloma, it, was, it might have been from a social worker during that first chemo treatment I had who suggested I go to a leukemia support group meeting. I didn't want to. I was thinking it was going to be some touchy-feely type gathering, and ultimately, I went, and I met my first myeloma patient there. He introduced me to other myeloma resources, including our local support group, which I then attended and found that to be an amazing, edu amazing education where patients and caregivers would share their experiences. They would bring doctors to those meetings, and I got to really learn more about myeloma. So I guess maybe the best advice myeloma-related was from that social worker, and I probably ever, haven't ever told her how much I appreciate that. That's a great answer, and I bet you she'd love to hear that. You know, are, related to research in general, or even if you think about, obviously, you're mostly involved with myeloma research, but are you optimistic about the future of research in myeloma and other cancers? And if so, why? Well, I'm very optimistic about treatment for myeloma. And that's as a result of the fact that I've watched it over the past many years. Since 2003, more than 10 drugs have been approved for myeloma treatment, which is really pretty incredible when you think that it only affects you know, maybe 30,000 people a year are diagnosed with myeloma in the U.S. 
these drugs then get used in combination. So as a result, since I was diagnosed, the overall survival rates have tripled since then. And now myeloma and its surrounding environment are becoming better understood. And we're seeing more talk about precision therapies, smart monoclonal antibodies, treatment like CAR-T therapies. They're all in tests for myeloma. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I've actually heard the word cure mentioned for myeloma. And it may well be that a certain subset, well, it may well be today that a certain subset of myeloma patients are cured. We just don't know which ones. But it may be that we do have treatments in the future that really can cure certain subsets of myeloma. So I'm very optimistic about it. Rightfully so. I'm certainly hearing the word cure more and more these days as well. As a member of the Patient Empowerment Network Board, as a survivor and patient advocate yourself, what piece of advice related to empowerment would you like to leave the audience with? I think it's really important to understand your cancer. Understand in the case of myeloma, what your markers are. These are what's used by the doctor to determine if a treatment is working. I think it's also really important to always consider clinical trials, whether you're newly diagnosed or relapsed from a certain treatment because trials might give you access to that newest and greatest new drug that's out there. You're followed awfully carefully during the clinical trials as well. And you, so it may benefit you and that information from the trial will certainly help future myeloma patients. And go to a support group, share your experiences. Remember how overwhelming it was when you were diagnosed with a cancer of something you've never heard of. I know for me, well, 24 years seems like a long time. I remember so well when that doctor told me I had myeloma. It's just, uh, you know, it was, I was flabbergasted because I felt great at the time and, and I didn't believe that I could be ill. So remember what it was like for you as an individual and go to that support group and share the information. That's wonderful advice. So Jack, thanks so much for sharing your perspective today. We really appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Jamie. This has been Empowered a podcast by the Patient Empowerment Network.